Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Book Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Nasa Mir about the cruel optimism of racial justice. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Nice to be here. Um, this is an incredibly important book. Um, it speaks both you know, to precisely our current moment, but also is grounded in, I think, a really important historical sociological analysis and has really um, crucial lessons actually for the future of not just British society, but but actually um, in some ways kind of global um, societies as well. And, and I think the place to start with it, you know, to kind of give a, a sense of why the book really does matter is with the title. And we, we probably need to do a bit of ground clearing around this idea about racial justice, partially because you know, it's a kind of crucial, um, I suppose, kind of sociological or, or um, philosophical idea. But actually, it's kind of present in everyday life now as well. So what is it? What What are we actually talking about when we talk about racial justice? Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. And one of the things that the book recognizes is that we use terms like racial justice quite um, frequently without necessarily having a shared understanding. Uh, of what those mean. So, so what the book begins by doing is trying to say that there's a really rich repertoire of ways of thinking about racial justice that we talk about in terms of anti-racism, racial equality, sometimes we talk about it in terms of racialization and so on. And that's something that sociologists have, have got quite a long investment in. But they're not necessarily the same as what we might think of, uh, of as racial, racial justice. Um, and that's partly because, as, as a tradition, sociologists haven't been terribly normal, normatively interested in in the idea of, of justice um, as being something which is up front. It's something which we get to indirectly through the work that we do. We're all interested in social justice questions. We talk about criticality. We talk about inequality. But normatively, we, we rarely think about what you know what is a sociology of justice. So what my book does is say, well, look, all of these ways of thinking about, you know, inequality, um, um, to some extent, ought to be thought of as a tradition, the tradition of, of, of racial justice um, that connects with some of the more upfront and centered ways of thinking about racial justice that we get from people like Charles Mills, who is by training a, a political theorist and a, and a political philosopher. And what Charles Mills wants to do, to some extent, is, is to turn um, John Rawls on his head. So famously in The Theory of Justice, a, a classic landmark text within political theory, Rawls comes around and says, well, look, um, let's try and imagine, let's try and imagine what a just society would do. And he engages in this thought experiment. And one of the things that he suggests is that we can, we can almost from the, the ground up build uh, an ideal type of what a, a just society would be, and it'd be a society that doesn't disadvantage people based upon their known characteristics. So we do it from what he calls 
um, a veil of ignorance. We, we do it without knowing what our identity is. Therefore, on the grounds of prudence, we wouldn't want to create a society in which we could potentially be um, disadvantaged. And Charles Mills comes along and says, well, actually, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Rather than trying to imagine an ideal society, let's think about it in a much more applied way and think how you'd not kind of create an ideal society from ground zero, but how you would dismantle an already um, existing unjust society. And so Charles Mills says to think about racial justice is to think about the ways in which we need to have corrective measures for historical wrongs. Um, and that involves, therefore, taking the history of given societies into account to try to understand how we've, we've reached where we are. So, so racial justice in the book, and as I understand it, and in a way in which I think is, is complementary for a lot of sociological work on anti-racism, racialization, um, and so on, is an approach which says there's a tradition of thinking about how race and racism has helped to structure um, social um, and political systems, and that these have a historical legacy. Um, but this historical legacy gives us really a primary objective, which is to try to firstly correct what's historically um, been a, a wrong, not in terms of you know going back in time, but thinking about the legacy of those and not pretending that they don't have a bearing for the present. But also then moving off that to say, okay, well, how do those present wrongs potentially have future implications? And that's where my book, to some extent, departs from traditional thinking on racial justice within uh, political theory traditions that try to think about race, um, because it's also future-oriented rather than simply being kind of corrective justice, which is Charles Mill's argument, um, which tries to respond to people like John Rawls who want to um, have a, an idea of a distributive justice. Um, my idea of racial justice wants to say, well, there's ways in which societies are currently organized, which are partly a reflection of their past, but societies aren't only a reflection of their past, they're also partly um, a reflection of how they, they imagine their future will be. Um, and we need to take that into account when we go forward. Where does cruel optimism fit into both, I suppose, that um, understanding to kind of historicise racial justice, but also thinking more future-orientated? Well, it's cruel optimism enters this when we're thinking about the idea of progress. So one of the things that you often encounter when you talk about racial justice is this question of, well, things have got better, right? Things are better now than they were in the past, and they would continue to be uh, in the future. And uh, one of the things that um, um, you encounter in, in trying to sociologically kind of answer that question is to observe that, well, yeah, some things get better, but other things get worse. And they can happen in parallel. So attitudes can get better. Um, people can be more comfortable with mixed marriages, living in ethnically and racially mixed neighbourhoods, um, having a, a, a racialized uh, or minoritized co-worker and so on. Um, yet the levels of incarceration for young black men um, can continue to increase and increase uh, uh, a disproportionate rate. Um, and so one of the things that the cruel optimism tries to grasp is that, in a way, this kind of struggle for racial justice um, has no likely end. 
um, it, it kind of instead has this promise. Um, and it's a promise that motivates our desire to persevere, even you know, despite possible knowledge of likely failure. And, and this concept comes, therefore, from, from Lauren Ballon, who wrote this terrific book uh, on the cruel optimism. And it's a really kind of interesting and influential account, it's quite wide ranging. And in her work, you know, she's a humanities scholar. She's, she's trying to take in um, through, you know, literary studies, through the study of the history of art, through uh, an account of music as well, that um, there's this increasingly unachievable post-war promise. And she's thinking about this in the US context, um, a post-war promise of the good life, um, which in her terms allows us to see how the idea of progress to get into something better is a kind of a, a double bind is where the image of a better life available almost creates an impasse which doesn't really allow us to detach ourselves from what's probably not working. Um, and so um, Ballant kind of offers this account um, which I read and I thought okay well that's really helpful in narrating a lot of people's motivations for continuing to participate in uh, racial justice struggles but of course um, minoritized folk, especially, you know, African-Americans, but um, racially minoritized Britons and elsewhere, would, would always have been out of that promise of good life. It, it, it would have been a, a promise of good life kind of benchmarked against um, an ostensibly kind of majoritarian attitude of, of, of what what society is, you know. Um, and so I was struck by the fact that she wasn't really talking about race at all in her book, um, yet I was also uh, really impressed by the way in which that, that kind of metaphor of, uh, of cruel optimism helps us to understand what motivates people in racial justice struggles as actors, but also the kind of social uh, myths that um, help us to narrate the idea of progress on racism and anti-racism, that things incrementally get better over time with uh, concerted action. Um, and so cruel optimism helps us to kind of understand both the motivation of the, of the practitioners, but also the, the wider um, social understanding of, of where we are as a society and why, to some extent, we all feel shocked or surprised or, or certainly that um, it's a rude awakening to find profound moments of, of, of racial injustice. And there's a really lovely concept that Lauren Ballon has in that book, and it's a crisis ordinariness, uh, which she calls a genre. Uh, and you know, again, she's not talking about genre necessarily in terms of, uh, in terms of you know how we might think about film or how we might think think about literature. She's she's trying to kind of have it, use it in a wider sense to say that we we're all caught within this wider story of of um, of a normalisation of, of racial injustice. In, in my reading of her work and my application of her work which to some extent um, means that there's this perpetual cycle of optimism, um, uh, defeat and failure, normalization of that as the present condition, yet in a way that doesn't, um, doesn't, um, isn't fatal to an idea that things can get better and should get better um, over time. Um, and it's important to understand that when she's talking about optimism, when I'm reading her understanding is talking about optimism, that's not naive. It's not, you know, like being co-opted or, or duped. Um, it's instead, you know, a shared 
belief in 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 the virtue of, of racial justice as a good in and of itself, which is a really powerful motivator. So we all cling to it. Um, we're all kind of um, mobilized by it. Um, but ultimately, it it, it, it kind of almost um, it almost lies to us to some extent. I mean, there's two really sort of fantastic illustrations, both of um, that longevity of um, cruel optimism um, and also in, in terms of the, the importance of understanding the past in, in the opening couple of chapters of the book. And um, one is around, um, I suppose, kind of policy thinking or, or almost kind of public policy philosophy around how Britain might be a multi-ethnic society. The other is um, on the, I guess, very famous now Macpherson report um, that was written in response to the murder of, of Stephen Lawrence. But these two, um, maybe I'd call them sort of almost sort of empirical examples, are also framed by consideration of what it means to be a nation state, um, what kind of you know nationalism means in, in the concept uh, or the context of thinking about race. And, and I suppose a, a good way of synthesizing this into a, a kind of an answerable um, podcast question would be something like. What is it about nation states that you know mean that they are you know or should be thinking about race that they're not thinking about race and you know even kind of stuff from thirty years ago that tries to grapple with the nature of race and society is, is still kind of important to us today. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. That is a really integral feature of the book, and it has to do partly with the ways in which um, I rely to some extent on. And the work of Charles Mills, but also the challenge more broadly that thinking about race presents to an understanding of nations and nationalism, both from you know an intellectual disciplinary approach within social sciences, but also more broadly within um, a kind of more popular imagination, you know, in terms of the imagined communities that we are. And it's to say that well, that racial justice is or injustice um, is, is an intrinsic feature. Of societies in, in the global north um, and has been since the very inception of nation states, you know, where a, a kind of a racial contract, to, to use a term from Charles Mills, uh, prevails and is apparent in how nation states are very seldom recognized that their, you know, formation has come through imperial or colonial systems which were built on racism, let alone, you know, trying to grasp all the contemporary social or political or economic implications of those legacies might be. Uh, and people like Gaminda Banbury in the UK have talked a little bit about this, you know, how the UK suddenly went from being an empire to a nation state overnight um, and almost kind of reimagined itself as a state which had this multi-ethnic presence, yet, you know, my parents um, were born in the British Empire, and, you know, and I'm in my forces, right? So. Um, there's something about the ways in which the the social contract which prevailed certainly um, over time, you know, kind of prior to the Second World War, and especially in the US, which is where Charles Mills was thinking about um, the racial a racial um, contract from. But but in Europe, you know, think about the the post-war settlement, the consensus around social welfare, um, the welfare state, and so on. It, it's a very kind of statist idea, you know. Um, which had little formal um, recognition of how the wealth for that statist uh, impulse was, was ultimately reliant upon its imperial connection. 
And so when people arrived from from um, you know the Commonwealth, from the former empire, they were treated as a sojourner, or as foreigners, rather than as people who were intimately connected to a wider community that helped create um, you know the prevailing um, social system that it was now being felt. And I think that um, the challenge that has come with a lot of inquiry has been to try to think of, of nation states not as things which happen at their uh, metropole uh, or at their center, but to think about the ways in which they simultaneously rely upon um, what occurred at their periphery, um, you know, at, at their margins. And I think that a lot of the conventional thinking around this within nations and nationalisms in particular you know, is a very Eurocentric approach about whether or not um, there were, you know, small clusters of people, um, ethno-symbolists within, you know, Western, Northern, Southern Europe um, who mobilized and then the state effectively replicated their vision through the introduction of mass uh, literacy and so on, or whether or not this is all a modernist kind of construction that has occurred, you know, again from the from the metropolitan span outwards. Um, it really ignores how there's this kind of intimate um, colonial imperial um, relationship, um, which would help us to tell a story about why um, imagined communities, you know, don't have to be singular, don't have to be monoracial don't have to be um, ethnically, um, have an ethnic hierarchy, but they're actually, they've always been multiracial, multi-ethnic, um, and drawn in um, many of the constituent uh, groups that, that, that actually are present today. Um, so, you know, I've had colleagues tell me about their own family biographies, and I'm always struck by how multi-generational those stories are, you know, it goes back to the beginning of the uh, 20th century, the end of the 19th century, and then you start to wonder, well, at what point do people start to be seen as British, whatever their legal status uh, and their formal kind of membership, at what point discursively does that fall into a wider popular imagination of, of this being a shared um, shared identity, which isn't solely the preserve um, of white folks, and, and I'm, yeah, there's kind of a, an intellectual intransigence there, I find, um, partly given the biographies of their exponents, but I also think there's um, a deeply um, systemic problem in how we, we kind of try and discursively narrate this stuff. And in the book, I talk at some length about the move to try to inculcate British values or fundamental British values. And this has obviously been bubbling on for about you know, 20 years in various guises, from the um, kind of civic features of citizenship education to the ostensibly quite ethnicized, racialized criteria which feature within um, fundamental British values, compulsory education within various, you know, um, various stages of, of tertiary education today. Um, there's very little in that which tells the story about how Britain is, um, why it is the way it is today. Little about the empire, little about colonialism, little about the contribution that people have made, you know, to help rebuild British society um, over time. Um, and I think that's, that's deeply problematic, and it's something which then incubates uh, a wider kind of sense of um, hostility, ultimately. Because every time you encounter difference, um, it's deeply racialized as, as other rather than you know, as, as part of us.
I mean, we, we can sort of bring this up today and continue the cruel optimism theme and pick up on both racialization and the sense of kind of othering when we think about the differential impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and what one of the things that you do in, in the kind of uh, centre of the book is basically kind of lay out the sort of um, racism associated with the impact of COVID-19. And again, you know, it, it's a useful illustration of how if in the 90s parts of the kind of British liberal public sphere were grappling with um, a kind of multi-ethnic, multicultural moment for Britain, actually 18 months, two years ago, Britain was seeing effectively, you know, a kind of uh, national project of systematic racism in its response to this uh, health emergency. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I was always struck when I was reflecting on, because um, that felt like a very live um, work. It felt like a moment in which you could see in real time many of the things that colleagues have been identifying over a, a longer durée um, culminate, you know, in quite spectacular and um, tragic yet avoidable set of outcomes. And it was the way in which the the impact of the pandemic was almost kind of um, uncoupling vulnerability from its systemic features. So, you know, when we first started getting the data about the ethnic and racial disparities, especially in London, you know, which is where some of the biggest disparities were, um, where some of the better data was, you know, we were finding that uh, black ethnic minority groups, you know, across different ethnic groups, you know, were up to four times more likely um, to both be infected, but then the mortality rates were significantly higher too. Uh, and, and that has been talked in ways in which, you know, as I said, you know, uncoupled physiological risks from those systemic exposures. So it told us this story about disparity, but it didn't tell us that, you know, black and ethnic minority groups in London were three times more likely to be co-workers, that they were five times more likely to be in food production and teaching in healthcare, that were nearly four times more likely to be in health and social care and so on. Uh, and that that was then compounded by the fact that, you know, they're more likely to live in overcrowded accommodation for a great trans chance of transmission between household members. Um, instead, what we were told was that, you know, there were underlying vulnerabilities, you know, that there were people who had chronic conditions, they had, they had diabetes and, you know, they may have had heart disease and, and so on. When, in fact, when we controlled for those, those variables, we actually found that, that they weren't determining. What was determining was the fact that they were overqualified for the jobs that they were in, that they were underpaid, and that they were often residentially quite um, residentially quite clustered in, in in the cheaper accommodation where they where they had accommodation. And it was something again which you know you mentioned um, earlier was kind of brought out by Baroness Doreen Lawrence, who undertook a review of the. Um, emerging data for I think it was the Labour Party and you know, she concluded that black and Asian minority people they'd been overexposed, they'd been underprotected, they'd been stigmatized and she kind of issued this call to break what she called was a clear and tragic pattern. And you think, well, yikes, you know, it's twenty twenty one at that point, <clears throat> twenty twenty two, moving into twenty twenty two. And you think, well, you made this call before. You know, you made this call twenty years ago. Um, plus when the McPherson report um, um, was published, you know, into the inquiry 
into the death of her son, um, Stephen Lawrence, and the finding of institutional racism within the, metro, within the Metropolitan Police. And here you are again, 20 years later, identifying systemic patterns. Um, and it's, it's, it is precisely that. It was avoidable. It was avoidable. Um, but what we had instead in terms of the formal narration of that was that there were um, there were reflections of choices. So we had stories about, you know, factory garment workers in Leicester. We had stories about Eid celebrations. Um, we had stories about um, kind of um, communities not, not abiding by the um, formal lockdown regulations. And, you know, and that was all... Um, narrated this idea that there was a lack of civic spirit amongst particular racialized groups. And not a, very little of that was demonstrable at all. You know, where there was work in factory and garment um, sectors, you know, that had to do with exploitation. That didn't have to do with cultural choice. Um, and you know, most people, um, most people um, didn't partake in, in cultural or religious celebrations. So, you know, they quite uh, modestly celebrating these things within their family units and so on. So, yeah, so that the way in which the pandemic both threw up those systemic outcomes of higher infection rates and greater levels of mortality, but also the way in which it was um, um, narrated, you know, throws up that prior question that you were talking about in terms of how we um, imagine, you know, the, the collectivity, imagine the identity of society. You know, these people are still other, they're not us. Um, and so the pandemic was a tragic illustration of, of both strands of that, really. Um, but also, you know, um, gave an opportunity to, to get beyond it, I thought. It was striking that the people who were being characterized firstly as low-skilled were then celebrated as, as, as key workers, right? And, and that was, I thought, a really interesting moment to almost recalibrate what we value. Um, the fact that these people are so profoundly underpaid, yet they're keeping us going, should have been a moment in which a society could ask itself some real questions and um, properly, uh, properly um, recognise the contribution that, 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 that members of society uh, have made. Um, we were all busy clapping away what everyone thought of that um, gesture. Um, but that, again, the opportunity was lost because it was turned into... A, uh, and it was something which was kind of appropriated and then forgotten. And those those key workers, again, they became low-skilled workers, but the government should do everything to, to try to keep out of the country. Um, but there are there were lots of moments within that pandemic where alternative possibilities revealed themselves and how the very kind of sociality of, of ethnic and racial and minoritized groups within wider society um, became became prominent. And a potential vehicle for for telling a different story about who and what we are. So, you, you'd mentioned, or you sort of alluded to, actually things like borders, you know, control of of who gets in and, and who kind of counts within nation states, as as you were talking there. And what, one of the things that you know we've we've now got quite. Um, a rich literature around this um, and we've got you know a series of unbelievably horrific um, illustrations um, of, of how um, these practices work in, in in Britain but 
I was struck towards the end of the book how you you kind of developed that analysis to think and and discuss not just questions of kind of borders and and nationality, but actually to bring in ideas about whiteness and particularly um, ideas about what a citizen is, what a nation is. Um, And I I guess the kind of um, the threat of whiteness to um, the stability of, of nation states and, and, and citizenship. And, and I'm intrigued by that partially because um, I, I think it's um, a real, you know, sort of addition to the discourse that we've got at the moment and kind of centres um, a, a very different starting point for a lot of those discourses. But at the same time, um, I think it, it's something that, um, again, teases out this idea of the sort of cruel optimism of racial justice that on the one hand um, you've got, you know, some pretty terrifying and depressing uh, examples of white nationalism as a threat to kind of uh, society and and nation states in Europe, but at the same time, it isn't narrated or understood in in the same way as uh, I guess kind of um, broader ideas about racial justice figure in a popular discourse. Yeah. The first, that, that first part of your question, I think, is the key to all of that, which was to think about, you know, what Bauman called the social production of, of moral indifference. And I think that's what's contained within forms of whiteness. You know, we're, we're kind of happy, to some extent, to identify extremities of, you know, white nationalism. And they have to be extreme, increasingly extreme to be identified as a problem. You know, they have to be behind a, a coup. Um, or they have to be um, the motivators, an ambiguous motivator for egregious forms of political violence for them to be identified at the moment as white, white, um, um, white nationalism. <clears throat> but it's, it's, it's the rest of it. It's the ways in which um, there's a ways in which kind of majorities um, make their peace with. Um, evident racial injustice as, as a normalized social outcome. And some you know, majorities feel um, able to enact racial injustices within prevailing systems, um, which makes you know, racial justice quite an ordinary um, set of outcomes, which don't necessarily require intentionality on the part of individuals. You know, this is what ultimately institutional racism was gesturing towards. Um, that there's this kind of ordinariness to it, you know, going back to Vallant, as you said. Uh, and that has a number of strands to it. And I suppose if we get past the kind of identifying of white nationalism at the extremes as a problem, then we're left with the rest of the ways in which whiteness functions as capital, as, as privilege. And to put it in those terms has increasingly become um, kind of controversial almost. Um, because it suggests that there's a favouring, an active, coordinated favouring of, of white majorities, whereas in fact, you know, the minimal observation in, in the idea of white privilege here is to say that nobody's saying that if you're white, your life isn't hard, that you don't have injustice in your life, that you don't have struggle, that you don't have inequalities. But what is being said is that your life isn't made harder because of your whiteness, um, whereas the contrary. You know, it's not true of people who are racialized as non-white. You know, we're talking about processes here of racialization, and lots of people today who may be in the white camp 
may not have been in the white camp a generation or two generations ago, you know, from uh, in this country, <clears throat> at least you know, thinking about the Irish, also thinking about Jewish minorities uh, and how those racial projects have changed over time. So it's just trying to identify that, you know, the wider challenge here is for, for, for people who see themselves as white, white majorities to take some kind of ownership to some extent of this. Um, or at least if they don't take ownership of it, to recognize what that comes with. Uh, and that comes with, you know, building uh, a society or sustaining a society in which um, there's this kind of profound moral uh, injustice that is happening in real time, uh, such that you shouldn't be shocked when we have um, various incidents or effects um, of it, you know, either in um, the spectacular, you know, things or the kind of um, the way in which they come together in things like pandemics. Um, this is kind of you know, a normalized set of, of social outcomes which has a, a longer pedigree. And it has a longer pedigree which is partly anchored in um, in the racial contract, in the very, you know, creation of nation states. Um, but it also has a, has a, a kind of more medium term um, <clears throat> source within how that's translated into, as you say, precisely, you know, things like immigration legislation, the bordering um, of, of society, and, and then discursively, you know, the, the imagination of what membership of that society resembles, who gets to be in, what's the criteria of relevance, uh, what's the worth of, of people, and to what extent can this be anchored within a historical claim about um, belonging. Um, and I think those are the challenges which, you know, um, I think are uncomfortable for a lot of white folks. You know, to think about this as not um, a few bad apples about the barrel, um, and about thinking about how this kind of innocence, which a lot of, lot, a lot of kind of white majorities carry with them, needs to be relinquished. Um, which is not to say that, you know, you're, everybody who self-defines as white is responsible for racial injustice, but it's to say that you can't be innocent about the racial injustice which is happening around you. Uh, and at some point, you kind of need to ask the question that if you're not speaking out against it, um, are you in some way responsible for it continuing? Um, and that's, that's a challenge that um, is, is, you know, is deeply, um, deeply resisted. And, you know, it brings with it a great capital and, and fortune uh, for, for folk who want to who want to offer a counter view um, and say that actually a lot of this stuff has to do with the choices that minoritized people make themselves or there's something within their cultural practice or there's something within, um, or it's an asymmetrical critique that in addition to inequality, which is a historic thing, um, there's also been great opportunity. And you know, look at the Tory party leadership and the ethnic and racial diversity of its constituent um, constituent candidates, you know, doesn't this speak to a, a great vitality of opportunity and the removal of racial barriers? You think, okay, well, you can offset the numbers of people standing for the Tory party conference to those who are drowning in the Mediterranean or, or the English Channel, um, and that might give you a better a better sense of, of how racial bordering um, pervades today. But, um, but yeah, I think that, that challenge is, is a greater one. It's one that leads to more uncomfortable conversations than identifying kind of um, um, white nationalists who, who kind of want to blow us up or, or, uh, or organize a coup uh, uh, of democracies. 
I guess what follows from that is, is a sort of a how question, you know, how do we have these uncomfortable conversations? What are the sort of methods to, to kind of move uh, forward on this? And the very, very end of the book, and, and this is where we might draw to a conclusion, uh, I was really struck actually but by this um, idea about the need for imagination um, and it, it, it's something that was kind of implicit in, in the rest of the book, but, but you, you tease it out kind of more formally in the conclusion. And, and I guess that is part of the kind of, you know, how to have uncomfortable conversations and how to carry on, you know, the um, optimistic but realistic view on the struggle for racial justice. So, so where does imagination kind of come in? Why does imagination matter in the struggle for racial justice? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's one that, you know, is implicitly a, a question of sociology, I think, primarily, in that I think, to some extent, you know, I think that C. Wright Mills and other Mills was really quite right in terms of thinking about what the sociological imagination is, you know, that kind of connection of your um, um, your personal troubles, not just being private troubles, but being public issues, you know, public issues often of, of history-making. And I think when we... When we reflect on where, certainly, you know, Britain is, I would say the same as France, actually, and Germany, too, um, as countries, you know, that I know relatively well, I think people's imaginations of, of who they are and what the population is um, and what their co-members are is often way ahead of the state. Not always, but, but can be. And, you know, when we think about how comfortable and connected um, um, contemporary kind of young people are with um, their classmates, their families, their, their, their workmates and people in, um, they meet in leisure and consumption and so on. Actually, it's quite a multiracial story, a multi-ethnic story, which comes with it, um, the potential for empathy. Um, and in a way in which then remakes, you know, shared idea of what, what, what community is, you know, a local or or regional or national level, and and I think when I reflect on you know Britishness as something which was intimately part of um, our story when I was growing up, as something that we were prevented from from claiming uh, membership of uh, in the 1970s and 80s to thinking about what it is today. You know, they're not the same thing. Yet the, the perverse observation is to say that whilst people have moved in their attitudes to be a lot more um, comfortable, both minoritized um, groups with claiming Britishness and remaking it, not something of the preserve of white Christians, but as a, as a multiracial story which has a historical imperial feature to it but isn't necessarily present-centered, it actually can be quite forward-looking. Um, the state has taken a view that it needs to be almost calcified within some notion of fundamental British values which celebrates Churchill. And that tension, I think, is one which is reflected elsewhere in France too. You know, I think the identity of the, the state's vision of the Fifth Republic is at odds with um, second, third, fourth generation young um, French uh, Muslims who, you know, who want to wear headscarves but speak and articulate their arguments within the idiom of liberty, egality, fraternity, right? So I, I think that they, the optimism and the capacity for imagining futures uh, is something that um, outstrips the ability of states necessarily to to um, almost 
play parameters around. But that, but that also then um, relies on, on, on the ways and means and the institutional homes for them. Um, be that in the education system, where things that you know the state tries to some extent to to, to recalibrate in its favour, or, or indeed you know the the cultural industry, you know where is the funding to express these forms of imagination in the arts, um, in major productions, in ways in which when I was growing up, you know the kind of the radical other was trying to retell Britishness through literature, through film. You know, Hanif Qureshi had a massive effect on, on my understanding of what Britain was when I was growing up. Um, where are those figures today as part of the, the normal and the mainstream? They're there. They may not mean necessarily be on, on the BBC, and they may be in a variety of different um, arenas for um, articulating this. And you know better than I, you know, what the spaces, how those spaces may be convened uh, and the power of those in, in telling a shared sense of a, uh, of a wider kind of community in ways in which we reimagine who we are collectively. Um, but I, th- I think that's, that's something that I kind of, you know, often look to um, as, uh, as a source for optimism, continuing. Um, um, but I think it, it can't be asymmetrical. It can't all be an expectation that we rely upon future generations to do the work that that we should be we should be doing now. I mean, you've sketched out a possible future research agenda there really kind of neatly. And, and I always think it's a bit uh, sort of mean to end, end the podcast by saying to people, you know, you've done this amazing book. Clearly, it's, you know, a really uh, long-term, serious amount of work has gone into it. What are you going to do next? But it does strike me that the book is an agenda-setting book. Um, it's very much not a book that kind of closes... Um, an argument it, it's you know a, a book that could um, set several um, different uh, research agendas going so so where are you thinking about going next in in terms of your your own work and your own thoughts you know future book projects um, or are you thinking maybe it's time to you know think about something entirely different for a while yeah thanks thank that's a really interesting question um, so there, there are a couple of things which off this and as you say invite further consideration and potentially you know we reach trying to reach new audiences so so one is there's a book that I'm working on um, uh, with penguin for uh, and it's called the wounds of whitewash and, and the question that it asks is what prevents um, kind of members of white majorities who are relatively secure in and of themselves from extending a kind of an empathy or a radical empathy to, to racialized groups. What is the perception of, of, of what will be taken away, what will be lost um, in that? Um, and, and what is the kind of blindness to seeing that there's something shared here, you know, which is sociality, ultimately. Um, so that's, that's one thing which I'm trying to kind of work out, and I think partly it has a historical feature to it, um, but it also has a, a very contemporary salient in, in thinking about the ways in which a lot of people who you'd think, you know, uh, would know better, get very excited about talking critically about things like, you know, Winston Churchill statue or the memorialization, in my own case, of, you know, of, of David Hume in Edinburgh and why this may not, you know, mark the end of civilization um, should, it, um, should it be for, for consideration. 
So that's, that's kind of one thing that I want to pick up on. And, but then there's another thing which is kind of almost radically, um, radically departs from that, but it's also connected, and it's to do with the batteries of all things in the world um, and the ways in which um, the kind of extractivist logics which underwrote so much of the colonial and the imperial um, moments um, and the ways in which they enriched European societies are to some extent um, being reproduced within um, the contemporary scramble for you know, Africa in terms of you know, its cobalt and parts of uh, Latin America in terms of its uh, lithium. Um, and I was almost wondering whether or not there are repeatable normative features of, of that kind of extractivist uh, imperialism today, which would then have implications for, for the future. Um, in ways that are not unconnected to questions of racial justice.